In uh, Philippians chapter 1, it says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ the glory and praise of God. Morning, y'all. Happy New Year. Wow, that was a week. You'll be uh, happy to know that uh, I have made no New Year's resolutions, but nobody is pulling for Gordon to achieve his more than me. I think we will all benefit from that. Um. Before we jump into this series, I want to jump up on a soapbox for a minute. Um, I, I really want to reiterate uh, something because we get new people to Westridge all the time. And I, I just want to reiterate the fact that everything that we teach here at Westridge comes from the Bible, or at least we try to make it so that most everything comes from the Bible. Because we, we truly believe that the Bible is the only source for absolute truth that we are aware of. And I personally have made that quest and have looked around and have sought out, you know, and, and studied other world religions and other philosophies and really have landed on the fact that the Bible is the only absolute source of truth that we are aware of. And as a church, it determines everything that we do. Now, there's some practical areas where that's not the case just because of the fact that the Bible doesn't address everything, like how should we prepare your cappuccino on a Sunday morning. But anything that is addressed in the Bible dictates our theology and our philosophy of ministry, uh, which means that, and as much as I hate to say this, my opinion, and I have an opinion about pretty much everything, doesn't really amount to a hill of beans. And the only reason why I could even get up here and speak with any authority at all is not because I have some direct line from God or because I'm so superiorly educated in the Bible or uh, because I'm so wise, uh, but because everything that we teach comes from what we believe is the Word of God. So you should never completely trust what I say um, or what Greg says, or for sure what anything Gordon says, um, or any other pastor or teacher or author or somebody that you hear on the radio or the television, if it just doesn't gel 
with what you know about the Bible, you, you can't accept anything less than what comes directly from the Bible because we really believe that it's the authoritative word of God. Otherwise, it's just somebody's opinion. And I say, so what, really? Um, and I say all that because we're starting a new series where we're going to go through a book of the Bible. And we think that's really important from time to time just to go through an entire book where the, as we walk through that book, it dictates what we talk about and uh, the things that we say. And so as we start this new series, we're going to go through the book of Philippians, which comes from the New Testament. And I'll give you just a quick little background. In Acts chapter 16, we get some background on, on Philippians because we read that Paul and Timothy traveled to uh, a city in Macedonia, and Macedonia is now modern-day Greece, just to give you a geographical reference, Uh, and the city was called Philippi. And Luke describes it as a Roman colony, and it was the leading city of that area in that day and age. And through the Apostle Paul's teaching, it led to the conversion of a lot of very interesting people there in Philippi, such as a wealthy businesswoman who was known as Lydia, who made purple fabric, uh, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a jailer who, along with his entire family, uh, committed their life to Jesus. So from this rather motley crew came the start of what would be one of Paul's greatest success stories in church planting history. And just a few years then, after his visit to Philippi, we find Paul then writing this letter to his friends there at Philippi, thus the name Philippians, for those of you who haven't had your coffee this morning. Um, But we later on see that Paul is actually writing this letter from jail. And the book of Philippians was just one of four epistles, and the word epistle is just another fancy name for letter, that was written by Paul from his Roman jail cell. And Paul writes this letter as he is awaiting to stand before Caesar on trial for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's probably somewhere in late 61 or early 62 AD. And so he begins to write, this letter. He begins with a traditional greeting that Paul does in most of his letters, and then he launches right in and he says this, I thank my God every time I remember you, in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because your partnership in the gospel, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We've entitled this series, Choose Joy, because the thing that we're going to see throughout this book is the word joy comes up quite a little bit. Um, But we're also going to see that it appears that the Apostle Paul has figured out a way to maintain joy in his life, even when he's going through hard times, and nobody has been through hard times like the Apostle Paul did. And I think that we can make a distinction here between the word happiness and the word joy. Happiness is something that I feel when my circumstances are good, when I've had a great day, when I do something fun, when I 
eat chocolate. I'm happy. Aren't you? And there's nothing wrong with being happy. It's just that, first of all, things don't always go my way. Seldom do. And secondly, happiness is temporary. And the thing that I've learned through the years is that there is this distinct difference between trying to make yourself happy and having what the Bible describes as this true, sustaining joy, where no matter what life throws at you, you can still have a sense of peace in the midst of it. Because this joy is rooted so deeply inside of you, it is not dependent on your circumstances or how good you feel at any given time. Joy is a state of satisfaction. Or maybe a better word is contentment, regardless of any circumstances that you may be facing. C.S. Lewis said this, and this is one of my favorite quotes by him. He says, I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy. And the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I love that. And yet, even though I know that, I still find myself clinging to this world and all the stuff that goes along with it. Don't you? Clinging to this idea that I can be happy if I can just get a little more. If I can just get ahead. If I could just catch a break. If I could just get through this one thing, then life will be all good. But eventually, we learn that it's just not true. Because there is nothing in this world that can satisfy our deepest desires. Well, he goes on in verse 6, and I think he almost gives us a structure for how we can have this joy in the sense that, he says, being confident of this, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul, I think, is laying out here what I believe is the thesis statement for the rest of the book of Philippians, which is to say, and this is my paraphrase, that he who began this God thing in you is going to get it done. He's going to finish what he started. And this is really referring to this big, long, churchy word that we talk about from time to time called sanctification, which is really another way of saying that when we allow God into our lives, we all start out at different places, right? We're all at different stages of life. We're at different levels of morality and knowledge of spiritual things. Some of us have been through hell and back in our lives, and we're starting at a much greater spiritual deficit than others because of your past. And you have to go through a time of healing before you can even begin to think about moving forward. But no matter who you are or what you've been through, when God takes over, he levels the playing field and says, now you're mine. 
And he says, if you will allow me, I'll take over from here. I will work in you to help you to become the person I created you to be. The person that I envisioned you to be from the very beginning of time. What a beautiful image. You see, it doesn't matter how you start out or where you start out in your journey. It's how you finish. And God will complete you in a way that you never imagined possible. So Paul is really reiterating this whole idea, this doctrine of sanctification, which put very simply is this. From the point we give our life to Jesus and we become a Christian, to the point that we leave this world, God is continually working in us, perfecting us, so that we are constantly moving more and more to become like Jesus. It's a process. 1 Peter 2.10 puts it like this. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. This denotes a process or a movement where you move from one place to another. You move from once not being a people, somebody who didn't know God, who was far from God, to now becoming a people of God, where you're in a relationship with God. And once we do, there is this process that occurs where God continues to shape us and to make us into the people he wants us to become. Here at Westridge, that's actually shaped our vision statement. So we say it like this, that our church exists to help people encounter, embrace, and embody the radical love of God where the end goal is becoming more like Jesus. And by the way, this is a process that you choose to enter into. This is not something that's forced on you. It's not something that just kind of miraculously happens without, you know, to you. Sanctification is the journey that begins after we've taken the first step out on the narrow dirt path that leads to Jesus. It's a word that is used to describe what happens in the Christian life. And it's the stuff that not a lot of people like to talk about because it's the what happens next after you make that decision to follow Jesus. What we sometimes believe is that the day you decide to follow Jesus is the day that you stop sinning or that you stop being depressed or that you stop all the bad habits that you've been struggling with all your life, and now, miraculously, everything's going to be all good all the time from this point forward. And if it's not, some people will have you believe that it's because of your own lack of faith. But that couldn't be further from the truth. The dirty little secret of the Christian faith is that the day that you decide to follow Jesus and you make that commitment is the day when the real work begins. It's the day when you realize that the stuff of this world won't satisfy you any longer. It's the day when you become aware of the emptiness that you have in your soul without Jesus. 
It's the day when you realize that there's a whole heck of a lot more work that needs to be done in me, that needs to change in me than I thought. <coughs> Dang. Most people believe that when we grow as Christians, that we grow in like this straight line, that the longer that we're Christian, the more that we grow. But that's not necessarily the case because we seldom grow in a linear fashion that's kind of clean and neat like that. Most of the time, we're growing in more of a circularly, spirally, swirly way that isn't clean at all. It's more of a three steps forward and two steps back kind of a thing. For instance, you may be cruising right along in the Christian life, doing all the right things, feeling good about you and God, and then all of a sudden, something happens, and it feels like your faith has been pulled out from under you, and you hit a faith crisis. And all of a sudden, you feel doubt, and you feel fear, and you feel anger like you've never felt before. And you go, what is that? Or you may have been a Christian for a very long time, a mature Christian, and experiencing great growth. And now, after all these years, for whatever reason, you hit this, like, desert time, and you're not feeling it anymore. You you don't really feel like praying or reading your Bible or singing or going to church and you go, how did I get here? You know, I never knew this before, but um, pearls are actually formed out of pain. Did you know that? There are like these irritants that are like these small grains of sand that rub against the soft tissue inside of an oyster. And when that happens, it causes the oyster to then secrete a substance that covers the irritant with a special layer of this, like, goo. Let's put it scientifically. (laughs) And layer by layer... It continues to cover this irritant, and the irritant starts to heal. But the incredible thing is that the healing substance that the oyster is secreting is what is making the foundation of a pearl. So all the while, as this oyster is healing from the pain in its life, there is this beautiful pearl being formed. But the catch is that a pearl isn't made overnight. It can take as much as seven years for the oyster to go through the healing process and produce just one tiny pearl. (laughs) The tough part of the Christian life is the waiting part. This process of sanctification goes too slow for me. It's a lifelong process of God working in us and shaping us and making us into the person he wants us to become. And it's unfortunate, but it's typically in the difficult times. 
in the tough times, in those times when we are laying on the floor, broken and beaten and in pain, when we finally allow God to come in and to heal us from that brokenness and pain, and as he does, he slowly makes us into the pearls that he has envisioned us to be from the beginning of time. He makes us into this person who has a greater sense of peace. And all of a sudden, we're not affected by all the small stuff. All of a sudden, we're just a little more chill. He he makes us into a person who loves more when we're not necessarily a loving person, who gives more of ourselves and makes us generous people even though we're a little stingy by nature. This is a person. He makes us into a person who is closer to God than we could ever, ever have imagined. And doggone it, people like you. People like hanging out with you because there is a depth and maturity in you that they've never even seen before. Which is exactly the way that Paul feels about the people of Philippi, when he says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with this affection of Christ Jesus. I love it when he says, I have you in my heart. It can also be translated to say, I hold you in my heart. He loves these people because they have been changed by God and you can't help but want to be around people like that because they are people who, who, even though they are messed up people, they share in God's grace with you and because of that, there's no room for judgment. There's no room for prejudice. It's people who are authentic and real because they have been through the tough times and they get it. They understand God's grace and there is People who are just exuding a joy that is contagious. That's who I want to be around. And this is my prayer, Paul says. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Notice that he didn't pray that they'll be happy. He didn't pray that they would be successful. He didn't pray for God to take away their problems or the pain that they were struggling with. When Paul prays, and you see it in his other letters as well, he prays for people to experience a total and radical life change. He prays God-sized prayers that they would love each other with a love that would just blow their minds. And that they would grow in knowledge and depth of insight so that they could know what's real and what's not. To be able to discern what has lasting value and what doesn't. And Paul's saying, hey, you don't have to settle anymore for what was. Life doesn't have to be that way when you were a people without God. Because now you're a people of God. And there's a whole other perspective out there. If you could just open your eyes and get this depth of insight and understand that there really is something more, something 
meaningful. And life is way more fulfilling when you get that. And then Paul ends up this little section by saying that he hopes that you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. And here he's talking about being filled with what we commonly refer to as the fruit of the Spirit. And he's the one who authored that, which is the goal of sanctification. That when we go through this process of sanctification, as we grow in becoming more like Jesus, all of a sudden we're full of things like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Paul says, this, this then is the goal for the Christian life. That through the process of sanctification that we become less full of the stuff of this world so that we can become more full of the stuff of God to the point that we're just oozing this stuff, this fruit from our lives. That we become more of Jesus and less of me. Which is really hard for me, by the way, because I like more of me. I'm a pretty success-driven person, and so there's times when I lose my perspective. I lose my way. I have a tendency to lose what's important in my life. And I can definitely see from my past, and maybe this is who I naturally am, that I'm like the antithesis of the fruit of the Spirit guy. I'm like the guy that's not so kind and impatient and anxious and rough and unloving and kind of a stick in the mud when I leave myself unchecked. But I have to tell you that at the same time, I see hope for me. Because I see God doing his thing in me and I've never been at a better place in my life. I've never had and experience such a peace like I've experienced this last year where I feel like I'm finally developing some wisdom along with my gray hair. I feel a contentment that I've never experienced before where I think I'm really okay with whatever it is that life brings me. I feel like I'm just now starting to hit my stride with God, like on the inside, there is this God thing that's going on that I can't quite explain. But I love it. I guess my point is that no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey or what you've been through, there's still hope for you. Because if God can do his thing in a guy like me, and transform a pretty rough, unfruitful person. He can certainly change you. He's just not done with you yet. And we have this promise that he who began a good work in you will not quit on you. He will carry it to completion 
until the day that we walk out of this world and into the next and God can declare you finally sanctified when he says, I'm done. Look in the mirror. That's the vision of you that I had from the beginning of time. But in the meantime, day in and day out, he comes in and he slowly changes us into this person who the older that we get in our relationship with God, more like Jesus we look. Two paths diverged in my life, and I chose the tough one without regret. I chose the one that I pray that one day I'll look more like Jesus and less of Dan. I really see the, uh, the next few minutes as being some of the most important minutes of our entire week. It's a time when we just stop and we take communion together. It's a time where I see that we have this opportunity to empty out all the junk in our lives, all the sin, all the stuff, come clean before God, and to really fill ourselves up with being more like Jesus. So in just a moment, there'll be a tray of bread that'll be passed, and if you want to, you can take a piece of bread and eat it, but when you do, take that in remembrance of the broken body of Jesus Christ. The Bible asks us that this whole thing is taken very seriously and very reverently. And in the same way, there'll be a tray of cups of juice that'll be passed. If you take a cup of juice and drink it, put the empty cup back in the tray, pass it down to the next person, but as you do... Take it in remembrance of the blood that was spilled there on that cross that gives us hope. Let's pray together. Father, we are just so grateful for your son Jesus, and we pray that you can help us be more like him. That you can help us just to empty out all the junk and really focus and fill ourselves with you. Father, we thank you for your grace that we fall headlong into. And we thank you for that love that grows in us, that it may just abound. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.